all little kids like art and nature. I've never met a little kid who doesn't like art and, na- and, and nature. But most normal human beings grow up around the age of 12 and go on to more grown-up things, and I just have not grown up yet. Hi, I'm Mark Laren Young, author of three new books about whales for younger readers, Orcas Everywhere, Orcas of the Salish Sea, and For Babies, Big Whales, Small World. Welcome to Scanna, a podcast about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment for fans of fact-based reality and reality-based facts. When I was working on my book, Orcas Everywhere, I really wanted to feature a Robert Bateman painting. I mean, I was focusing on the iconic orcas of the Salish Sea, and Robert Bateman is the iconic artist of the Salish Sea. I mentioned this to my editor, and she laughed. There was no way we could afford a Bateman painting for my book. I decided to ask anyway. The price for including his wonderful painting, Orca Procession, Two copies of my book, Orcas Everywhere, for the library at the Bateman Center in downtown Victoria. After that, I knew I had to ask if he'd let me talk to him for Scanna. Now, I've interviewed a lot of people over the years, hundreds, probably thousands of people, but not many icons. So I was thrilled when Robert Bateman agreed to talk to me. But the coolest thing about the interview was he wanted to talk while he was painting because apparently he just never stops working. Check out the show notes at scanna.org and you can see exactly what he was working on while we talked. Now, like I said, he was painting in his studio on Salt Spring Island and our phone connection wasn't exactly perfect all the time. So apologies if any of this audio is a bit glitchy, but our conversation was fascinating and he shared his history and his plans for the future. As always, Scanna is brought to you by our amazing and essential pod of patrons at patreon.com, including Chantel Shawnee Surratt, Susie Venuda, Simon McNair, Darren Laren Young, Robert Anderson, Nancy Campbell, Eagle Wing, and Yosef Wask. If you like what we're doing and you want to hear more about oceans, ecoethics, and the environment, please become one of our sponsors and join our Patreon pod. Even a dollar a month is a huge help because the more subscribers we've got, the more our Patreon campaign is featured and the more sponsors we get. Now, we have all sorts of cool perks for members and can be convinced to add more if you join. And right now, all our Patreon funding is going towards working with some amazing students from the University of Victoria to help us produce this podcast and our upcoming documentary on the past, present, and future of the Southern Resident Orcas. And please subscribe so you don't miss upcoming episodes with eco-heroes like Daniel Pauly, Peter Balaban, Takaya Blaney, and Autumn Pelche. Scanna is also brought to you by... Orca Publishing, the publisher of my three new books about whales. You can find out more about these books and the ebooks and audio versions at orcaseverywhere.com and scanna.org. And they are all available at your local bookstore. And please support your local bookstores during these crazy times. Buy my books, buy everybody's books, buy puzzles, support your local bookstore, support your local stores. And now, Robert Bateman, who just turned 90 
on May 24th, 2020 on being an artist, a naturalist, a teacher, and why he feels it's vital for all of us, especially young people, to spend more time in nature. Hi, Mark. Hi. Hi, I'm supposed to keep on painting. I sometimes, when I'm doing an interview, I forget. I my love... brush stops moving. <laughs> I can uh, I can chew gum and paint at the same time and even, you know, talk. <laughs> I love that. Can you tell me about the piece that you're painting right now? It's... Um, it's one of the bigger ones. I don't think it's the very biggest, but it's close to it. It's uh, four feet high and 12 feet long. It's uh, three, four by four foot canvases. It's a scene we actually saw, although of course I'm modifying and changing around on the Platte River, which is in the middle of Nebraska. And it's one of the great um, nature phenomena in North America. Uh, the sandhill cranes that migrate up from the Gulf of Mexico and nest mostly in Northwest Territories, but also in the prairies. Uh, they stage here on the Platte River on, during the migration, and there's uh, thousands of them. I'm not doing thousands. I think I got about 100. Alex, I'm no good at counting stuff. Alex counted them. And Alex, how many did you count? She said she counted 111, and uh, and I'm putting uh, some in the background and some flying. So it's it's kind of tedious, I have to admit. Uh, I'm glad I didn't paint 101 Dalmatians and I'm painting <laughs> 111 cranes. It's uh, yeah, it's it's okay. It's uh, you know a lot of of doing art and I guess anything is. You know, perspiration rather than inspiration. And not that this is perspiration. I'm just kind of sitting here dabbing away with gray paint on the wings of all these cranes. What inspired you to go out and see the cranes? Of course, I've been a lifelong naturalist. And it's one of the great phenomena, um, as I already said, of, of nature on display. Uh, you know, I've, I've gone to uh, a number of other things. The uh, Hawk Migration at Hawk Mountain in Pennsylvania. There's another um, wonderful gathering of birds in Cape May, New Jersey, when the horseshoe crabs come uh, come ashore to lay their eggs. Thousands and thousands of red knots. I don't know if you know that's a bird or not. It's a sandpiper, chubby sandpiper. And uh, ruddy turnstones come and feed on the eggs and thousands of gulls. Uh, Blackhead gulls, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we, you know, at, at times it's worth, uh, even though I, it's on my conscience, especially nowadays, getting on an airplane and flying to some place to coincide with uh, enjoying these spectacles that we're lucky to still have in nature. Can you talk about some of the other places that you've gone to? to paint these phenomena. It was one of the things that really hit me. I was rereading the uh, the children's book that you did, and 
it was talking about you going to see polar bears, not just paint them. You catching all of these amazing animals in the wild. I was just wondering how you go, that's the one I'm going to go see. That's what I have to go paint. Well, naturalists um, have always been my, I say, my kind of species of human being. I hang out with them. I pay attention to them. I, we get about five, you know, different nature wildlife magazines, and you know, and there's kind of a network of this type of thing. And so, um, I hear about it, and uh, and my wife Birgit is also interested, and she's a very accomplished photographer, and of course, I use them for my subject matter for painting, and so um, it's well worth. You know, going going and having these adventures, and it, uh, formerly um, we were fairly closely connected to Lindblad Travel, which came about through my doing um, limited edition prints. My publisher, Melpon Press, uh, he he networked a lot with um, nature. You know, the, sort of the top nature people and travel nature travel people in America, and so that through that they would, uh, I would kept getting invited, um, you know, as a resource person, which just means uh, it's it's a, a kind of a big um, a pompous name for getting a free trip and uh hanging out with the people and having these great experiences and um all i have to do all we have to do birgit and i is um you know um hang hang around with the other people sit and have dinner with them and uh and hang around with them out on out in the field every day and then um tell them what a wonderful trip we're all having and it's just you know wonderful Phenomena, and of course they're my kind of people, so it's it's just delightful. We don't do it that much anymore because it's almost that I've been there, done that. That uh, it was a wonderful magic carpet for getting all over the all over the place now, and now we've already been all over the place, and a uh, little bit on my conscience flying, and uh, you know the cost of the environment of all these travelers, and also. Um, I like being home. All my life, I've considered quality of life is number one. And uh, I went into teaching originally so I could live wherever I wanted to. And where I would want to live would would be nice places for nature. And so um, back in the early days, there was a great teacher shortage. And I was able to um, get a job. Uh, which was within striking distance of Toronto, my hometown, and where my uh, my relatives and parents and brothers and so on were. And so, actually, be, before I I even uh, I not only didn't have a wife, uh, I didn't have a girlfriend who was a potential wife, but I knew my place I wanted to live for my life, and I bought ten acres of land on the Niagara Escarpment. Uh, an hour's drive from Toronto. Where are you calling from, by the way? I'm calling from Victoria. Yeah, so you uh, you may or may not be familiar with the Niagara Escarpment, but uh, it's the closest rough land, kind of beautiful, natural countryside to Toronto. It's an hour's drive. And so um, 
I, I bought uh, 10 acres with the woods and a stream and a view for $4,500, 10 acres with an hour of wow. <laughs> Way back um, in the 50s when, uh, you know, prices were a lot more reasonable. And then um, actually uh, I would take various girlfriends to go and visit it and go on hikes. I'm, I'm not saying that I married the one that fitted the property the best, but uh, Birgit did. And um, anyway, the rest is history. <laughs> so that's where I started out uh, with getting the kind of life I want and lifestyle. And then my closest buddy, uh, Bristol Foster, um, who I went around the world with, he had moved to British Columbia. He had this attitude that quite a few ex-Torontonians who uh, have moved to BC have, if you could be living in paradise, why are you still living in purgatory in Ontario when you could be out in British Columbia, which is paradise? And uh, so we kept coming out here for visits. And finally, I put a down payment on a on a chunk of land on the ocean here. And that's not where we're living, but uh, uh, it was three acres and then coming for visiting. And back in the old days, I I um, used to have uh, a bunch of money I didn't know what to do with. Uh, things aren't quite the same now, but uh, and I didn't really believe in banks, and I even believed less in the stock market. And so I put the money into land and bought the acreage of land out here, which is... Uh, Ended up being over 100 acres on a on a pretty little lake. It's all swamp all around the lake, but I like swamps. And we built a dock out in the lake and a trail down to it, so uh, we can go swimming in the lake every day, probably all year if we were, if, if I didn't mind the temperature. Um, and so this is the setting where we want to be, and that's where I'm sitting right now. It's funny, I've always thought of you as a BC artist because I grew up here and I was very surprised to find out that you grew up in Toronto and fell in love with nature in Toronto because that's not where I think of nature being. Nature, yeah, nature is is absolutely in Toronto too. It's Well, nature's everywhere. Um, I, we, we have friends in New York City and, uh, and one of the great places for nature is Central Park right in the middle of New York City, and we spent some time there and done birding there. And uh, uh, you you don't have to drive very far to uh, to get uh, into some beautiful wetlands down south of New York City. And, you know, and then you can go inland and up the Hudson River, etc. If you've got an eye for it, nature is everywhere. And I guess you can't think of a more urban area than New York City, but it's there. Now, you pretty much always describe yourself as either an artist and naturalist or naturalist and artist. And I don't think I've ever seen an interview or heard an interview where you've described naturalist. Can you say what a naturalist is? Yeah, um, I think a naturalist is, uh, I guess simply put, is somebody who notices nature and um, pays attention to it. And I, uh, um, ever, actually, ever since I was a preteen, I was 
teaching nature actually at the Royal Ontario Museum at the Junior Field Naturalist. I belong to the Junior Field Naturalist at the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, as my, you know, my mother was a good a good mother, as a lot of mothers are, and gets her kids enrolled in different things. You know, it might be Boy Scouts or basket weaving or whatever it is. And uh, my mom uh, uh, heard about the the Naturalist Club at the Royal Ontario Museum and sent me um, down there on Saturday mornings. And uh, I I felt, you know, the other the other naturalists and and the staff were my kind of species. And so um, when I was when you're 16, you get kicked out because you're not a junior junior field naturalist anymore. And um, I I was I, I was going to miss it. So I said, gee, could I come back as a leader? And so ever since the age of 16, I've uh, I've been teaching about nature. And I love, I always love teaching. I actually, uh, years ago, I actually taught Sunday school uh, long before I was an official teacher. And I love, you know, talking about things and ex- explaining things. And and so uh, going into teaching was almost a no-brainer. It it didn't hurt, but this was not my motivation, but it didn't hurt that it w- there's uh, two months in the summer when uh, during my... Uh, early years during those two months I could get uh, summer work in the field and got to the Arctic several times and uh, to British Columbia on one occasion and and so uh, my whole life story has been planned around having adventures in nature. I love that. Can you talk about what it is that you love about teaching because I think that uh, you know so many teachers are always such an inspiration to people. You look back at how they became passionate about things, and so often it's a favorite teacher. So what is it you love about it? And was it a teacher who helped turn you on to nature? Uh, well, um, I did have a science teacher in junior high, uh, Mr. Carter. <clears throat> Interesting who we call him, Mr. <laughs> and... Um, and yeah, but I I was even while I was still a student, I had surpassed him. Um, and you know, we would the odd time there'd be a class field trip or something, and I actually uh, knew a bit more than he did about identifying birds and that type of thing. But it was this going down to the museum that really cemented it. And um, I think it's the same as my uh, my mom. Um, Always had opinions, uh, liked to tell stories. My dad didn't. He was taciturn, and he was an engineer and uh, background uh, from a farmer in eastern Ontario. And so he didn't. um, He was just a nice presence, but he wasn't uh, chatty like my mother. And so um, my mother and my grandmother on that side and so on told lots of stories and I like telling stories. I like listening to stories. I like reading stories to the grandchildren, which I do during the summertime when we're together. And I've just always been fascinated by stories and particularly stories about nature. And uh, the uh, the writers were a big influence on me. I borrowed um, uh, the um, every book 
written by Ernest Thompson Seton, who in a way could have been um, a mentor if I'd only known him. But uh, I guess our lives overlapped in time. But uh, I was just a kid when he passed away. But he was um, a great naturalist and wrote a whole number of books. And I have I have them all. And um, I would borrow them from the uh, public library in Toronto. I'd read uh, I'd read almost all of them every year on um, stories about nature and um, putting yourself in the shoes of animals, so to speak. So I've just always been that way. Was there a particular animal that caught your eye early on? Because you know you, you clearly study all of these animals in depth. Was there one that you went, yeah, I just I want to know more? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I, I have a, an, an affinity to predators. And, um, of course, it's much easier to see birds than it is to see mammals, since most mammals are nocturnal. And so it would be raptors. And uh, I still get excited by them. And uh, actually, we uh, I've designed the whole house here around being able to look at nature from the studio window and from the bedroom window and the kitchen window and uh, was... Uh, lying in bed, uh, I guess it was yesterday morning when a um, hawk came in and um, all, we have bird feeders all around and the bird and birds all uh, scooted out of the bird feeders as fast as they could because it's a cooper's hawk and cooper's hawks eat birds and a uh, cooper's hawk flew in to the trees down by the lake and then, uh, and then actually flew up and landed on the bird feeder right outside the bedroom window and sat there looking around, uh, seeing if there's any, I guess, injured birds that hadn't weren't able to get away. But there weren't any, so then it lost interest. So it's a, it's a continuing uh, show sort of thing going on, looking at uh, nature from the window, and especially birds, um, birds of prey, um, like hawks and owls. Owls, uh, I go out every night and listen for owls, and I used to hear them every night, and I don't anymore. I have a little uh, concern, and I, I, I keep meaning to check with some experts on populations, but I have a feeling the populations of important birds like that are going down. You've seen so many amazing animals around the world. Are, are there scenes that stand out for you whether you've painted them or not, are, are there moments with animals that you you think of when you just think of, you know? Yeah, it would think? be um, Serengeti and Ngorongoro Crater. The best place for looking at wildlife is East Africa. I like it better than South Africa, which we've been to several times. We've been to East Africa at least five times. And, um, yeah, and I guess the pinnacle... And I think it's still good would be in Gorongoro Crater. Have you been to Africa? No. Put it on your bucket list if you can afford Absolutely. to at some point. Yeah, well, uh, Gorongoro Crater and the Serengeti that's close to the, the crater, um, that part of the Serengeti. You have, to, you have to pay attention to what time of year uh, because the herds in the Serengeti migrate on a a big triangle every year. And the uh, ideal one, um, I think it's early spring in our, you know, in our calendar. 
um, is to go to that corner of the Serengeti. And Gorongoro Crater is the same all year round because the animals that live in it don't climb up over the ridge. It's it's too cold and wet. It's a different habitat. So it's like uh, like an aqua- like looking into an aquarium at the tropical fish. But um, outside the big, the big herds of the Serengeti, which I think are still pretty good um, at a, a certain time of year. So that's that would be the number one place. And we, as I say, I've been there at least five times. And you stand there and paint, right? Like you're you're out in the wild. No, no, I don't. No, I don't paint. I I sketch in my sketchbook, and um, and take photographs. Oh, okay. But you are you're out there with the animals, with the wildlife. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. No, a, a painting in the field is very time consuming, and uh, besides, in most of the uh, a lot of the good areas for wildlife, you're not supposed to get out of your vehicle. You know, I could sit in the vehicle and look out the window, which I've done lots of times and and done drawings. But sit, do, sitting there doing a whole painting is kind of a waste of time um, when I could be exploring and taking more photographs of new new critters in new new areas, covering the ground rather than sitting there spending three days, which is what it might take to do a painting in one spot. That's not a good use of my time. Gotcha. And... Can you talk a little bit about some of your adventures up north and seeing penguins and polar bears and going up to Yeah, the penguins island? are only down penguins are only down south as I guess you know. Okay. And, and <laughs> there's no penguins in the arctic they're totally southern hemisphere. A few penguins get as far north as the Galapagos which is on the equator and that's it. But uh you know they're abundant down um, and I, I think they're still doing doing quite well uh, down in Antarctica. In some places, you can stand in one place and see. Well, I think literally thousands. Oh, you know, calling away to talking to each other. As far as the eye can see, it's it's just like uh, being at a huge rally in Nathan Phillips Square in Toronto or something like that just but just endless living things there relating to each other and walking around and so on and all but the Serengeti then you see thousands of wildebeest out on the plains so there still are places like that where you can see um, thousands of decent sized things of course you can go to northern Ontario and see thousands of black flies and mosquitoes but that's uh, I don't uh, appreciate them quite as much as I do penguins and wildebeest. <laughs> Can you talk about the value of getting kids out in nature? Oh yeah, that's as I said earlier. That's been my um, kind of one of my missions in life is to get get more kids out into nature. As I already said, I started at the Royal Ontario Museum, teaching at the Junior Field Naturalist Club, uh, taking kids out on hikes and field trips and even overnights and so on. Um, it, I think it's by far the best activity. I, I, I think it's way better than sports 
uh, Sir Peter Scott, who's one of the great naturalists who ever lived, uh, Englishman, as you may or may not have heard of him, a great uh, conservationist. Uh, well, he's he's one of the most remarkable human beings of our time. He's passed away now, but he was a pioneer glider pilot, and he's a World War II um, sort of fighter pilot ace, and he was a... Um, a you know, doing a tremendous amount of things like sailing, all kinds of adventures. And we were privileged to get to know him. And his father was Scott of the Antarctic, who, of course, uh, died tragically on that uh, on his last trek. And he was still a fairly young, young guy. And um, Peter says that, uh, or passes on, that his father had left uh, left you know to go on that expedition when Peter was just a, a baby and uh, his advice to the to the wife Peter's mother was uh, raise the boy in nature it's much better than sports and I always felt that way myself I was never um, a jock in fact uh, I I I was slightly an anti-jock because it just seemed to be too competitive and um, had a certain streak of meanness running through it. And I never knew any meanness running through naturalists. They all seemed to be magnanimous and and warm and friendly and were not ever saying things like... I remember the last baseball game I ever played, I think it was in grade seven, and uh, I I was a fielder and I dropped the ball, and uh, the uh, my own teammates said Butterfingers, and so I said quietly to myself, "Okay, that's it. I don't need this." And I never played baseball again. Ne- never had naturalist friends say Butterfingers or anything <laughs> demeaning like that. Can you talk about nature deficit disorder? Yeah, and of course that's, um, oh, what's his name, uh, who, who we know now, and you're quoting him, who wrote, you know, a whole book on getting kids out into nature. Um, can you remind me of his name? Uh, um, pardon? Well, the nature deficit disorder. Um, yeah, Richard Louve, L-O-U-V-E, L-O-U-V. Richard Louvre is uh, was talking about uh, kids suffer from nature deficit disorder. It's of great benefit to be out into nature and uh, paying attention to. Well, uh, one of the ways I put it, it's kind of a, a unselfishness, becoming involved and very interested in lives that have nothing to do with your life, but you become absorbed. By these other lives, and maybe you get into conservation and helping them and that sort of thing. And I think that's way better and less self-centered than uh, many of the other activities that young people get encouraged to do, which can become very self-centered. And uh, I don't think being self-centered is healthy. I read a lovely piece that you did on education. Can you talk about how you'd like to see kids learn about nature and how we'd like to see adults learn about nature. Yeah. Well, one of the things I, I think I'm all, I'm almost alone in public 
pronouncements on this, even Richard Louvre doesn't talk about it particularly, is getting to know the names of your neighbors of other species. You've probably read that I've said that. And to me, it's just, uh, you know, being civilized and educated to know the names of your neighbors. Actually, I know the names of our immediate human neighbors. I don't know the names of all neighbors all the time. But um, knowing the names of your neighbors of other species has many advantages. One is it's good to, um, you know, it's it's a good hobby to pay attention. And, and the other uh, good aspect about it is um, if you're paying attention, you can notice, oh, gee, what's happened to the red-breasted nuthatches? Um, not just you've seen one bird, you've seen them all. You know, uh, they they used to be common at all the feeders. Now they're not. Well, I think they are so common, but I, I just made that up. They're, uh, they're doing okay. But a lot of things um, I used to uh, see commonly all the time, and now I don't. And so if you're paying attention, and especially if, there, if there's a critical mass of people and voters paying attention, that things are disappearing. Uh, then it could be very helpful in spending taxpayers' dollars on making sure the things don't disappear. And uh, because if, I mean, they literally, um, birds, for example, are literally the, the canaries in the coal mine. I guess you know how that works, do, do you? Oh, yeah. Canaries in the coal mine? If you'd like to explain it, that would be great because. I have to explain that term for people when I talk about the orchids. Okay. Well, they um, uh, be, before um, you know, technology was uh, as important as it is today. They used to take um, canaries in cages down in the coal mines when the miners went down, and uh, a lot of the poisonous gases are odorless and undetectable, and you could have carbon monoxide build up and you can't smell it and then uh, you you're there you know picking away with your pickaxe at the, at the coal seam and uh, you collapse the carbon monoxide and you could just die right there but it, the canaries are much more uh, susceptible and they would kill over first and then you'd kind of go oh oh i guess i better get out of here the the uh, carbon monoxide levels are too high and so it's a forewarning of dangers. Now, the same thing as a metaphor happens with the bird populations. If they're dying and there are less of them, we should be curious and say, okay, why would this be? And it could be environmental factors that are affecting us as well and maybe going to, going to be bad news for us. And so it's a good idea to pay attention. Can you talk about how you use art to bring people closer to nature? Uh, I I don't use art to bring people closer to nature. Other people <laughs> use my art, I guess. I I mean I I guess I'm overstating it, but I I don't. That's not my purpose. I've done uh, four or five paintings that I think I might call propaganda pieces that would be sort of in your face. Um, when you look at the piece, it may be thought-provoking, but mostly um, I just paint things that I love, and that's what all artists have done. 
you know, Van Gogh did sunflowers and um, Monet, Monet did reflections in the water, etc. Uh, and so um, I've just painted what what I'm interested in and what I love. And all artists, all through history, that's what they've always done. And if there is a um, a, a byproduct of uh, stimulating people to pay attention to nature, that then people would vote with their votes and vote with their pocketbooks and would help to protect nature, then that's a bonus. Can you talk about how your foundation happened? Well, it, it actually was, the, the Bateman Foundation was not my idea. I was um, uh, c- connected uh, with Royal Roads University. They were a, a little bit interested in having, you know, displays of my work and that sort of thing. And um, I remember having a meeting with one of the board members. And uh, I... I said, uh, you know, I, I, I want to have my, um, uh, you know, leave my art and have it uh, maybe have some kind of Im- impact. And he said, well, uh, the the university is not the, the is not the organ for doing that. He said, you'll have to form a foundation. I said, what? He said, yeah, if, if you want to uh, have control over it and do something about it you have to form your own foundation. I said, well, what's involved with that? And he told me about it. Yeah, we need a board and we need fundraising and all that kind of thing. And that horrified me a little bit, but uh, then that's what we did. And so um, I kind of was, um, I wouldn't say led kicking and streaming, screaming, but it wasn't really my idea, but it was, it would, was a way uh, then people could make uh, donations, and I could donate my art and also funds and do fundraising appeals and have it have projects and getting kids into nature and setting aside nature areas and all that kind of thing. And he he was right. That's the way the proper way to do it is to have a foundation. But it wasn't really my idea. It was just uh, the best way to uh, structure it. Can you talk about how the center helped? Uh, yeah, let's see now. Uh, going back to it, it's, you obviously know what it is. If you're calling from Ontario, you might not have seen it. Well, you've got the most beautiful spot pretty much in BC. Oh, I I know, I know. It's just, we kind of lucked into it. It was, um, that, uh, beautiful looking like a Greek temple, Ionic temple, building right on the ocean <laughs> right uh, and, um, you know looking across the harbor and couldn't be couldn't be better location 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 and uh, they were looking for somebody to occupy it um, and of course the downstairs is a is a, is a nice um I guess a restaurant, not a cafeteria, and and so uh, the second floor was uh, available, and um, and so we, you know, we had discussions back and forth, and um, it seemed like a 
delightful venue. In many ways, it's too small. There's no storage space. There's very little space for office and people to, uh, you know, the foundation workers to work and and classroom space. Although the classrooms can be in the gallery, but it 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 I kind of stumbled into it. I, I didn't go looking for it. And the um, harbor authority who own it, uh, they they thought that would be a, a good use for it. That was a sort of a public amenity. You know, there are various things when you go to Victoria. The wax it used to be a wax museum, which a lot of people hated because it had horror stuff in it. When I was a kid, it was a wax museum. Was it? Yeah, I never saw it as a wax museum, but I heard bad reports about it. <laughs> um, and so it was. Uh, yeah, it. Don't want to say it was marriage made in heaven, but in a way, it it was something like that it came together. Just uh, at the right time and the right place, they were looking for a tenant, and we were looking for a place to uh, show my art. And I have all these uh, prints, you know, of all the different paintings I've made through the years, and uh, they can be framed up. You probably wouldn't be aware of this, or you you might be, but there's a, a fair amount of snobbery in the art world. And they were, um, and um, there, there is still is a whole element. We're against uh, reproductions, um, especially sign and numbered reproductions of uh, of artwork, and um, and so they, um, you know, they they would not want to show that in certain art galleries, um, because it's it's not original art and uh, I get it. I don't agree with it, but I know what they're talking about. So uh, this worked out perfectly because, uh, you know, it was my space and, <laughs> and the general public are, are quite happy to look at reproductions. I've always maintained that uh, the, um, the most important thing behind a painting is the thought. Um, and the texture of the paint is not not the key thing. I mean, uh, how many people have seen Van Gogh's sunflowers, and how many people have actually seen an original of Van Gogh's sunflowers, and yet everybody knows Van Gogh's sunflowers, um, or Da Vinci's Mona Lisa, or whatever it is. So it's the thought behind the art that is the key thing. Um, and you don't actually have to go all the way to the Louvre to see uh, Mona Lisa. In fact, it's, uh, it's well, last time I was there, it was uh, was a ridiculous thing where there was a queue, there was a lineup, and she was inside a box that was kept dark, and uh, periodically the light would come on briefly, and you could look at it, and at that moment. Um, Dozens of mostly Japanese tourists would take flash pictures of it, even though it was against the rules to use flash. But that's why it was in a box with uh, smoky glass. Anyway, it was, it's ridiculous. And uh, seeing the original of Mona Lisa is almost hopeless. But seeing the 
reproductions are just fine. Isn't there a piece in the center that you did when you were 12? Like the, Pardon? I, know, I remember hearing there was a... I think you said this in one of your interviews, and I don't know if it's still there. That there was a piece of art that in the center that was something you did as a kid, I think, was when you were 12 years old. Yeah, uh, it's still there. It's, it's it's hanging in the Bateman Center. I did it for my mom for Christmas when I was 12 years old. Yeah, I got um, all little kids uh, like art and nature. I've never met a little kid who doesn't like art and, na- and, and nature. But most normal human beings grow up around the age of 12 and go on to more grown-up things, and I just have not grown up yet. That's when I got serious about art and nature was when I was about 12. And uh, by the time I was 16, I, I sometimes like to set myself goals. By the time I was 16, I'd painted every hawk and owl in North America um, based on different uh, pretty poor references in National Geographic and other other things. I would never actually straight copy anything, but uh, I would change the habitat around and change the pose of the bird or whatever it was. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'd, I've just always been serious about uh, painting art, and I got serious when I was 12. I mean, painting nature. I got serious when I was 12. Then I went through a whole phase uh, when I was, uh, let's see, I guess it was about 16 or 17. And um, I got in with a, a group of friends, um, just a little a fluke of fate, uh, who sang folk songs. And I picked up the guitar uh, and I learned how to play the guitar when I was 17. I plateaued when I was 18. I can play uh, most folk songs as long as the key of D. I basically just do the key of D. Um, and so I uh, we would get together and just it's a, a bit of a fluke of fate. It happened that about half of the of these folks, this was back in the 40s and 50s, about half of the, the people were, were friends or friends were uh, art college people, either the, attending the art college or even some of them were staff at the entire College of Art. And, um, and I remember... Um, one of them said, you cannot do real art with a small brush. And by the way, this was in the 1950s. And the group of seven, of course, they'd passed away by then, but they were they were the mainstream art that the public viewed as real art in, in Canadian history. And uh, they all painted with a big brush or a palette knife. And, uh, and so you have to get a big brush and slap on the paint, and that was real art, and that was what was going on in um, in the in the great you know main art movements. The New York School of Art was um, kind of an abstract expressionism, and it got more and more uh, more and more. What was in was paint, and what was out was subject matter, and it became um, just painterly. Until finally, uh, toward the end of the 50s, with Jackson Pollock and Franz Klein and Mark Rothko, etc., it was only paint. 
no subject matter at all. Picasso always had subject matter. Um, he broke the mold of trying to do realism, but uh, but he always had subject matter. Um, usually it was a woman, but uh, some kind of subject matter. However, um, by the 50s, by the end of the 50s, it, there was no subject matter. It was only paint. And uh, I was a young guy interested in art. I was in my 20s, and so I was following along. But being an avid naturalist, I found it uh, it just it was really quite unsatisfying just slapping on paint. I would, um, you probably wouldn't know the the song. Uh, I've forgotten uh, what the name of the uh, of the woman popular singer. Anyway, the song was called was called "Is That All There Is?" If that's all there is, my friend, then just keep dancing. Pick out the booze and have a bowl. If that's all there is, is that all there is? I would do an abstract painting and I would look at it and it was fun doing it. And then I would say, is that all there is? It was not very challenging, just slapping on paint. And so um, along came Andrew Wyeth. And I'm not sure if you know your Bible. If I say Andrew Wyeth was my road to Damascus, would that mean anything to you? Definitely, yes. Yes, okay. Well, most people wouldn't, uh, and the the this I've told the story so many times. The uh, succinct story, if you know the Bible, is Saint uh, a guy by the name of Saul, the Roman tax collector, was riding to Damascus to collect taxes, and uh, Christ appeared to him, and he fell off his horse and went into a fit. And when he woke up, he sort of felt the message had come through from Christ that he had to be, he was become the first missionary of Christianity. Christ had just been crucified and Paul never met him in the flesh. I think, I guess he met him in the spiritual world and, uh, he changed his name to, from Saul to Paul. And, um, on that road to Damascus, he had that conversion because Christ appeared to him. So my road to Damascus was the Andrew Wyeth show at the Albright Knox gallery in Buffalo which was the first mainstream show in an important contemporary gallery of a realist artist since 1900. And this was the 1960s. And um, what was happening, as I think I already said, is subject matter was getting less and less and less and less culminating in Jackson Pollock. And uh, paint was more and more and more important as I say, culminating in Jackson Pollock and the abstract expressionists. And then all of a sudden, this guy, Andrew Wyeth, um, who never went to art school, never even had been to New York, just painting the kind of his world, um, became very visible. Um, partly this show at the Albright Knox Gallery and then a show at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And uh, the public who never did like abstract art that much, immediately responded, and Wyeth became a, a phenomena. And, um, of course, I was immediately taken by him because he cared about the particularity of a, of an old stone wall or a rail fence, and it wasn't just paint. The subject matter mattered. And uh, so... 
I, uh, it took me about a year to get out of my abstract snobbery. And uh, Wyeth be, became my um, vehicle for doing that. And as you may know, we've been doing some reading. Uh, we actually went on a pilgrimage uh, down to Chad's Ford, Pennsylvania, and also Cushing, Maine, where Wyeth did virtually all of his painting. And, uh, and we met Andrew Wyeth briefly um, and spent quite a bit more time with Betsy, his wife. And it was just a, an incredible landmark in my life to be to go and visit Andrew Wyeth and Andrew Wyeth's world. Do you have advice for kids who want to be artists? Uh, yeah, paint your, paint your little heart out um, in all of your spare time with what you think of as your world and your and your life, and get a meal ticket. So you don't have to paint to sell. Uh, get you know you could be a bricklayer or a brain surgeon or, in my case, it was a teacher, and um, that's that's what will put the bread on the table. But um, just paint away, and uh, as the saying goes, if you build a better mousetrap, the world will be the path to your door. To your door. Um, there are lots of dealers out there. There's a, 10 times and maybe a hundred times more dealers than there were when I was a, a teenager that are doing okay uh, selling original art. So there is a chance that you'll, um, you'll be able to, you know, make a, s- a substantial amount of your living at it or maybe hundred percent of your living at it. But if you paint for the market to me, that's a sure way to become a nobody because you'll just be doing what everybody else is doing and you will have no no distinction that you are you and you'll just be uh, imitating. And I've, I feel that uh, is a mug's game. It just leads to, will lead nowhere. I love that. Living in BC, do you have any thoughts on the Southern Resident Orcas? Oh boy! <laughs> yeah, it's it's a, it's almost an anachronism and a wonderful fluke of fate that these big sentient beings are still alive and fairly well thriving um, in this you know in the twenty first century. It's. Uh, I just have such huge respect for all whales, including uh, humpbacks, uh, and well, all all whales. Uh, we we um, have a cottage on Hornby Island, north of here, and uh, the windows all look out on the ocean, and we saw humpbacks going by, and you can see them uh, blowing and going by. And we didn't see orcas this year, but we regularly do see orcas. I've been on whale watching trips, and of course you have to be careful now. And uh, they get better rules and regulations to keep people back from um, getting too close to them and disturbing them. The um, serious thing is, is of course, some sound pollution. Um, I, th- I think the um, tar sands, and generally speaking, burning fossil fuels is a bad idea. We should be uh, putting our 
our money and even spending more money on alternative energy sources, but uh, digging up tar sands and, and polluting a lot to purify them and then pipelining them or trucking them or railing them, railroad down to the coast and putting them into uh, tankers to ship over to China to me is a dreadful idea. I think uh, fossil fuels should be left in the ground and we should uh, be putting our uh, our, our money and our in- interests into uh, uh, alternative power, wind and water. We, have, we have really haven't nearly exploited waves and water and that kind of thing. But, uh, well, you know all about the different alternative power. We should forget about the fossil fuel thing and try to be as helpful as we can to the workers that would be losing their employment. But the world has to go that way. Do you remember the first time you saw a whale? Actually, I can't remember the first time. Huh. Oh, no, it might have been in Antarctica because we were going on these Lindblad trips down to Antarctica. That would be it. Would have been on a, on a Lindblad trip in Antarctica, probably in Antarctica or around the Falkland Islands or something like that. But I can't, if Birgit was here, she might remember the first time and remind me of it, but I I can't remember the first time. Do you have any sort of memories of the impression that early an early meeting with a whale made on you? You know, I, I guess in the bad old days, which I, I look back upon as the good old days, but we, uh, we went on... Uh, at least one particular specific whale watching trip. We went on uh, one with um, with our kids because as our kids get older, I really believe in uh, adventure and taking kids on adventures. And we went out uh, whale watching out of Telegraph Cove um, and uh, we were able to approach fairly close, in fact, way, way closer than now is permitted. Um, to humpbacks, and we saw killer whales uh, quite close as well. And we were so, um, uh, I remember there was one uh, fin whale that, uh, it was just a a fluky thing, if you'll pardon the expression, that um, it's the second biggest whale. It was huge. I don't know if it was 100 feet long, but it was very, very, very long. And um, we saw it in the distance, and then the Zodiac went over toward it, and it came up right beside us, like um, with a not-too-long pole, you could have touched it. And it blew, it breathed right beside us. And um, I think one of the field marks, but certainly I'll never forget, it had very, very strong halitosis. And in other words, we could really stank, <laughs> not just a dead fish was dead fish combined, combined with just a general stench in this mist that went all over us. And um, so it blew right beside us and then it went down and we cut the motor and uh, never saw it again. I don't know. The, the, the ocean was dead calm but uh, I don't know why why we couldn't see it it must have come up gone a long ways 
under the ocean holding its breath and then come up for a quick breath and then down again. But at any rate, that was a, a memorable one. And can you tell about your painting work, a procession? Uh, yeah, it, it's, um, the, as in all my paintings, they come from, uh, I put them together from a, a number of different sources. And that one, I particularly like that island. I think I modified the the hills in the background, but um, I like the format of the island. And of course, as I already told you, I, I took I take lots of photographs, so I photographed the island, and then the killer whales are based on other killer whales. Of course, I've seen them at uh, Sea World and in captivity, and I've seen them in in the wild, and it's a bit of a no-brainer to paint fins sticking out of the water. Um, but I, I, I like the, uh, I like the feeling of the of that background and that procession of those orcas going by. As you probably know, um, most bull um, orcas, of course, they have the over six foot tall uh, dorsal fin. But they are mama's boys, and they hang out with their mother a lot. And I was kind of showing that, but I showed that even more in another painting, with just the uh, the bull and the and the female and some beautiful misty islands. Nice. And I just thought I uh, wanted to end off asking you about an essay that you wrote about reasons to hope. Can you talk about why you're hopeful and why we should be hopeful? Okay, I've forgotten what I wrote in it, but uh, do, do you want to uh, elaborate a little bit more and I'll spin off on it? Um, oh, I will just... Well, I guess let's just go with what are you hopeful about? What, what brings you hope right now? I think you were talking about kids. I think you were talking about, about youth. Um, well, I think, oddly enough... Um, Although I think the television is a, I don't know whether it's uh, neg more negative than positive, it definitely uh, has uh, a lot of positive impacts because of all the nature shows. It started out with um, uh, way back when it first got going with the wonderful world of Disney uh, and Marlon Perkins' Wild Kingdom and both of those uh, shows were extremely popular. I think a, a lot of um, uh, executives and important people, politicians and so on today, were rugrats uh, sitting in front of their TV on Sunday evenings listening to Marlon Perkins tell about how wonderful nature is and how precious it is and we must protect it and preserve it. And that was his message and Disney's message in spite of all their faults, and I would—I was in my 20s when I, these things were uh, on TV, and I would take a certain amount of glee, sort of adolescent-type glee, and picking them to pieces. Um, like there, there was one—one um, one of the first nature films ever um, ever made was uh, called Beaver Valley. It was a, a Disney uh, full. It was a theater film for a Disney made called Beaver Valley. And um, it has the uh, the uh, mother, the narrator says the mother hawk is coursing back and forth 
over the field looking for mice, and she returns to the nest to feed her young. Well, it's a marsh hawk crossing back and forth over the field, and the mother returning to the nest has somehow transformed herself into a goshawk. Totally, not only changed species, changed genuses. And of course, I would scoff and harumph and <laughs> this is a, this is obviously a gigantic mistake, and it's a mistake. But I guess it's not that gigantic if it if the propaganda comes through that um, nature is interesting, varied, and precious, and needs protection, which was the Disney message and the Marlon Perkins message. And so um, I think that's practically nobody in the so-called civilized world in the Western world that would not be aware of that about nature. And uh, I think that there's, there's enough, you know, starting around then, all of these organizations like the Sierra Club and World Wildlife Fund, and um, there's a huge list of conservation um, and protectionist organizations have sprung up since I was in my 20s, and that's a good thing. Um, so there's a critical mass out there, and there's a, also a critical mass of uh, of people willing to give money and to fight with politicians to protect nature and protect habitat, etc. So it's it's getting better all the time. I don't think it's getting worse all the time. Although there's still a lot of a long way to go. What do you what do you enjoy most about what you do? Is there a particular aspect that that's a favorite or mm hmm. Um was it always I enjoy sharing so if I get the chance to share and I give workshops every once in a while and uh, and do interviews on the phone like I'm doing now and uh, and show my paintings the one of the big uh, 12 footer I'm working on now will be uh, uh unveiled at the uh, cancer center in Omaha and I'm sure I'll I'll feel a little uh, gloat of pride in my chest when uh, when it's unveiled and I'm, I guess people will be ooing and aahing and that, I mean that, I, I shouldn't be admitting that this kind of thing matters to me it doesn't matter to me a lot but it, but it, it's it's always nice to be appreciated my mom was a great appreciator and I'm an appreciator myself of other people so um, that that's it. But the the other thing is, um, and probably more important, uh, I am vaguely conscious that uh, the world is slightly changed because I'm I'm in it, and I'm and this, uh, for example, this crane painting will have legs, and uh, long after I'm gone. Uh, perhaps you know people will be moved by it and uh, and get pleasure from it and boy that's a that's pretty heady stuff if you think that your life has had even a little bit of that that's fantastic thank you so much for doing this and, and thank you so much for everything that you do 
Okay, my pleasure. I always enjoyed doing it. Okay, and if there's anything else you want to uh, hear about, or uh, as Alex said, anything you need for illustrating or anything, just uh, give us a show. I'll do. Thank you very much. Okay, good luck with it. Talk to you later. Right. Bye-bye. Thanks again for checking out Scanna during these surreal times. If you like what we're doing and want to help us share more stories about oceans, ethics, and the environment more often, please join Scanna's pod and become one of our sponsors at patreon.com. Subscribe to the podcast and our newsletter. Follow us on our social media channels. Share the show with your friends. Hey, share it with your enemies too. Everyone has more time to listen these days. And if this show doesn't work for you, I'm Michael Moore. Scanna is produced by the always awesome Rain Banu. And this episode, audio engineering by Izzy Almashi. Scanna's theme, Scanna, is by Leah Abramson. And we'd like to end off this episode with a song by Blue Rodeo that pretty much captures where we're all at right now. This is called Till I Am Myself Again. That my house was on fire